0: Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to another episode. And this is episode nine of the Backport Stories podcast with Chuck Stead. Once again, if you're enjoying these stories, don't forget to click follow, subscribe, give us a great rating, and please share these stories with friends and relatives. I promise you, they're going to thank you. Immediately following our story today, Chuck and I will chat once again with Scott Lewis, the composer of the music that you hear at the beginning and the end of our stories. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, the stories behind the stories and some of the people and some of the times. So once again, we thank you for coming back here each Friday and here now, without any further ado, as soon as he puts on his headphones (laughs) (laughs) and turns to the right page in the book... Without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Chuckstead. Thank you,
1: Joe. Thank you, and uh, it's great again being here with Scott. You guys are you guys are a lot of fun. This is um, it's just fun. This story is called "The First Deer." Come hunting season, the air turned crisp and wet and misty in the morning, with the last of the leaves rusted blood red against black bony branches, and the men leaving work early to walk deep into the hills to look for sign. Everything about the world seemed different then. There was an expectation of something brewing. Guns, warm walnut stocks, cradling blue-black iron barrels emerged from their sleeping places. They were held, cleaned, rubbed down in banana oil, examined, compared, talked about, and then left waiting in the corner. Hunting season in the Ramapo was the hardest time to get any work done. Men who painted, built, plumbed, and managed the machines of the village walked off into the woods with a gun in their hands, and they stayed there. Women who did not hunt took all this in stride. They either continued their work, arriving home at the end of the day, anticipating the sight of a deer carcass hanging about somewhere, or they remained home with an eye on the tidiness of the house, anticipating the arrival of a tired hunting party. And children, well, they carried on as children always do, But with each advancing year, their awareness of the tradition played a greater role in their lives. When I first became aware of the tradition, I was four years old. The withered old heebie-jeebie man, he needed some attention now. He and Hulda, my grandmother, had returned from Florida in the spring. They were sad and lonely down there. He complained that his children had sent him to an elephant's graveyard. "'I was thrilled at the prospect of ancient skeletons in a graveyard, "'but the old man complained only of shuffleboard and bingo. "'They moved into a small house in Slotsburg up the road for a while. "'They were lonely there, too. "'So they returned to their first house and moved in with us. "'It was a triumph for me, uh, something of a disaster for Tessie. "'The old man had grown difficult. "'His smoldering cigars left on the edge of wooden side tables demanded attention. "'He didn't care for this attention.' Tessie would bring him in a new white owl, help him light it, then she would sit across from him and put a match to her own Chesterfield. They smoked quietly there in the living room of the house on First Street. The stuffed owl in the corner on the mantel would be looking down at them. He would watch it. It was perhaps their most peaceful of shared moments, the two of them, and then Hebe Jeeby would shift about in the easy chair and suddenly tell her to go about her business. Tessie got up, left the room. She moved about the house with sounds of shuffling along the floor, but no, he knew what she was doing. He knew she was just having sounds rather than making them. And eventually she stood in the doorway and asked him if he wanted anything. And that's when he'd cut loose. Woman, you're just watching to see if I'm going to burn down the damn house. Hell, I bought this house from old man Davidson when, when he was at the ironworks. "'I've seen more houses afire than you will ever know about, "'and if it I had a mind to, to burn down this house, "'I'd have burned it down a long time ago. "'Now go on, get about your business, woman.' "'Tessie would not flinch. "'Her strength was rooted in something just as deep as his. "'She stood firm in the open doorway. "'When she spoke, her words were decidedly chosen "'with unusual economy. "'Pop, where you set your cigar is my business.' Hebe mumbled. He groaned about how he'd been beset by interference. But he surrendered. I was just around the corner on the second to last step, listening. The pattern was familiar. The old man always gave in after a struggle. Tessie turned around and she saw me looking at her. And she ushered me into the room and placed me in the easy chair opposite him. Here, visit with your grandpa, Chucky. After she left, I sat perfectly still, watching heebie-jeebie disappear within a blue-white cloud of smoke. Slowly, he reemerged with his folded brown face staring down hard. I thought, if he had wings or a tail, they were hidden behind him somewhere. The old man looked up at the stuffed owl. "Ho, ho, ho," he said, and then waited for a response. Nothing. "'Then he looked to the mounted deer head, "'a fine specimen hung on a black walnut shield. "'See that?' "'I looked up. "'It was smooth and silent. "'It did not move. "'Your dad took that one up in the torn. "'Good hunter he is. "'I hunted some, but not like him. "'Walt's got patience. "'Some of the boys can't keep still. "'Off they go, following sign "'and chasing anything that moves up ahead of them. "'Sometimes they get lucky.' But the trick is to walk slow and to keep still to breathe it. You you got to let it come to you. Don't don't try and make it happen. Let it happen. Walt does that. Slow and steady wins the race. Th- that's how that little turtle he beat that damn smart-mouth rabbit. Slow and steady wins the race. He sucked down hard on the smoldering butt which brought it to a brilliant red burn. Then again, an exhalation of soft smoke swallowed him up. When the first deer arrived, it was brought in on the roof of a green-white station wagon. I looked up through the dusky white curtains and saw the car back in along the house. The deer was a two-point buck stretched out along the top of the car. The deer's tongue stuck out. He, he looked like he was hungry or, or annoyed about something, so I stuck my own tongue out, and I touched the gauze of the curtain. It tasted like cigar smoke. From the window, I saw Walt, dressed in his red, black, checkered, Woolrich hunting pants. He opened the garage door. It squealed along the track. Now half the double bay garage stood open, yawning to the frozen world outside. Two other men, they removed the deer carcass and carried it into the garage. As they lumbered along, I saw that the deer's underbelly was split open. I ran through the house calling for boots and coat so as to join the men. Such things as deer belly split open needed an investigation. Out in the garage, Walt steadied his block and tackle. Flip Matoski knotted the heavy rope around the deer's antlers. Fagan stood in appreciation, gazing at the carcass and fiddling with a single lens camera. He had recently gotten into the habit of carrying the camera around the village, although he needed Uncle Mal to help him with the settings. Fagin managed to compile a grand series of slides, regardless of the fact that he did not own a projector. Fagin was a heavy-set man of simple needs and wants, who was in the custom of talking in sing-song rhythms. He admired the carcass, and he said, "'Fine young buck you snuck out of the torn this morn.' Flip hunkered down to his deer. He rolled it over to reveal the entry point, with the twelve-gauge head marked just above the right shoulder." Angle shot him. It knocked him right over, right here through the ribs, see? Fagan whistled. Drilled him through the heart. I, I seen shooting like that back in lowland Catskill Hills over to Margaretville. They still fill the hills with their kills in Margaretville. Flip raised the deer by its throat directly under the pulley. As Walt drew down on the rope, Fagan stepped back and shook his head. Now that's nice shooting. No no fooling around. No, just, just putting them down. Nice, nice shooting. I, wrapped in wool against the hard winds of the north tundra, waddled out across the back porch and headed toward the garage. Before me, the three men stood with the deer carcass now fully two feet off the floor. I stepped across the frozen earth and approached the open door of the garage, staring all the time at the hanging body. Slip pulled the deer's ribcage open. Walt shoved a short block of wood into it such that it remained gaping, wet, and red. They then spread the hind legs and jammed a block with notches at both ends so that the entire deer was open. Having done this, Flip stepped back and took his cigarette package from his inside jacket pocket. Walt spread a heap of sawdust directly under the deer. I stared at the dusty yellow mound. Flip said, "'That's for the blood, boy.' Fagin picked up on the words. "'Blood, boy, drip, 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 blood, boy, don't you take no sip!' My sister Muffin, her lanky body wrapped in brown woolen, she came around the side of the building. She considered the hanging buck and said, Disgusting. She looked at me and said, Don't let them skin you. And then she marched off to the house. Flip, having lit his cigarette, returned the pack to his inside pocket. We're not skinning this now. We're uh, dripping it first, you see... You you skin it later, you drip it, that's called bleeding it. You let that come out, then you skin it, and then you carve up the meat. I stared down at the hollow space, in between the dark cavity. Flip lowered his long legs down alongside me into a squat, and he spoke slowly. You wonder where the organs went? I looked at him, poker-faced. Organs, you know, stomach, heart, liver, everything that makes it live. "'Once you shoot it, you gut it, and you leave the organs there.' "'Fox food!' Fagin declared. Flip looked at him. "'Well, the heart and the liver, but not the stomach. "'Stomach's too gassy.' The sound of slow walking and heavy breathing drew our attention. The old grandfather now approached from around the side of Flip's Pontiac wagon. He walked steady and determined across the crystallized earth. He wore a single visor cap that shadowed his brow. When he neared the front of the car... He, he leaned his rear up against the engine hood. He stretched his neck, turkey-like, to get a better view. Nice one. Yep, Walt answered. Whose? Flip's. Flip said. Won't carve it up without anyone but Walt. Yeah. Yeah, the old man replied. He's good with a knife. He looked down at me. And he said, slow and steady with a knife. Slow and steady. Makes the difference. Win's the race, boy. Fagan now launched into a sing-song talking of, ultimately about various things until Flip started telling the old man where he shot the deer. Walt brought out some large buckets for the men to sit on and a smaller paint can for me. The grandfather complained about his bucket. Walt went back into the garage and came back with a wooden folding chair. They all sat around the hanged carcass, smoking, talking quietly. Each of them, even Fagin, made a point of including me. I said nothing. I sat there. I watched. I listened. I rubbed my feet together when they got cold. I rubbed my nose when it got wet. You know, we've been talking about the Montgomery Book Exchange for a while now little family-owned, used bookstore nestled in the historic Hudson Valley. That's what it says on their website. But here's the thing. It's not just a slogan. It's true. That's what you find when you visit Montgomery, New York, a handful of businesses along Clinton Street, all locally owned, with the book exchange right at the heart of it. Check out their website. They do author's readings and book talks. And come September, they'll be doing their monthly Facebook bag of book auction. It's just real. It's just down-home real. And I like the idea of being able to bring books that, and I
0: like the idea of being able to bring books there that somebody else will eventually read and enjoy. You know, we live in such a throwaway society. Having mm-hmm. a place where you can send what you've read out into the world means that you're a part of the continuum and that you're not just dumping stuff into a
2: landfill. Yeah. And there's something really significant about holding in your hands a book that was read by a generation before you maybe finding their scribbled notes on the side of a page. Yep, the Montgomery Book Exchange in Montgomery, New York. For hours, go to their website, montgomerybookexchange.com.
0: So Muffin said disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> my father couldn't shoot him. He just he was my father was a butcher by trade. In, in our tiny little grocery store, he would you know cut up meats for the customers and everything. And I asked him one time, "Well, well why don't you uh, go up with the guys uh, hunting? You know, do you, you have a he still had a, a rifle from when he was in the service and everything. And uh, during World War II. And he said, "No, no, no, I can't. I guess there's just something." There's just something majestic about a deer. I just can't do it. He said. I understand those who can and why they do, and the ones that I hang out with, your uncle Walt and, and those fellows, they eat all the meat. They use that deer. They they ask me to prep it and do some of the butchery of it because they're going to eat every bit of it. But I just can't. I can't bring myself to pull that trigger. I can't do it. And uh, he said, I tried one time, but I just.
1: He said, I just couldn't do it. I have a story that I haven't told yet uh, about Mal and Joe talking about not hunting as opposed to hunting. It's, it's one of the places that they, you know, they, they, they often went at uh, cross purposes with one another, Yeah, but it's one of the places where they were in alignment with one another. And it's kind of interesting that, uh, that they, they found that. It's a commitment. It's a rough commitment, especially for children when they first learn how to do this. You're you're, you're yeah. taking life, sure, and uh, and that's real life. I mean, it's there's no way around that, and it does change you. You know, it it all your experiences you carry with you forever. Yeah. So it's it's a commitment and it's hard. And uh, I you as you know I hunted, you know, sure. But uh, yeah. uh, over the years, less and less until I I don't anymore. Having said that, and talking in this time frame, I still own guns. I still have my rifles, uh-huh. shotguns, and yeah. such. Um, and I, I, when Luke was learning about this, I took him to a target range and taught him shooting. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it's from another time.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a it's a pastime for those who truly are in it for its real purpose, not those who who pay and go to some game farm and kill mm-hmm. poor animals that don't have a choice and my wife she was born in and raised really raised for the most part in vermont those who hunted up in vermont they hunted for food it was their food they were hunting because they had to hunt mm-hmm. you know and uh and where she lived in a little town called pulteney and it was kind of a sacred ritual in that way they're taking life to preserve life but uh, yeah, he never and and ne- neither do I. I never saw anything wrong with it when it's done in that spirit at all. You know, but of course today, you know, we have AR15s out in the woods and all yeah, sorts of Yeah, you have stupid stuff. Crazy insanity and
1: in Yeah, no, yeah. the the way I learned hunting was more of a traditional way and and it, was, it, it it it's hard for the PETA folks, who God bless them, I love that they exist, but it's hard for them to comprehend that there was a, a sense of a, a profound sense of spiritual connection mm-hmm. with the hunter and nature in in the traditional way that i learned it's, it was like local knowledge it's it's that thing that i had learned and uh, and it made me a better naturalist it made me a better ecologist and and ultimately a better conservationist and environmentalist you know all those things because it started way back then with you know walton the, the old timers the elders and their their hunting parties yeah. Well, I've heard
0: you talk about you know, your father almost seeing the the woods as a kind of church. Oh yeah.
1: Oh you know? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he definitely it was a solitude and and um and I think the the place for reflection mm-hmm. for him was uh, was the woods.
2: Yeah. Well, I think in that um mindset going into the woods for food and to see the bigger picture of nature as one thing. Um, I think hunters are some of the most uh, conservative minded people in terms of conservation, Mm -hmm. because they under, you understand how they're all, it's all linked together Mm -hmm. and I've never hunted myself. I've always thought it's a really important skill to have, especially after COVID that (laughs) we should be able to take (laughs) care of ourselves in some way. The survival. Survival. Right. But by the same token, I, I, could, I can't go into the woods during hunting season for fear of the other people in the woods for hunting season. Well, when Kat and I were living up
1: in Kloiber's Pond area, that's right near Lake Mambesha, um I taught her shooting and took her hunting a couple times. And, uh, but that's pretty much when I stopped because I encountered hunters who were dangerous as hell and who shouldn't have been in the woods and shouldn't have had guns. They were just very dangerous, and that's there's a flood of that going on because there's there's not that sense of this is a skill and it's it's a, it has a deeper meaning, and um, it, it, that's all tossed aside for you know trophy hunting, mm-hmm. and that's when it stopped for me. You know that that was not was like twenty years ago maybe or so, but uh, I, I just I got angry. You know that this is this is this is the wrong way to have a relationship with nature, even if you are going to extract nature. You, you don't do it in this bloody arrogant fashion and, and you don't risk your life in the process. There's no need for that. And um, and that's the danger. And, and of course, with the proliferation of firearms today, that's the danger of what we have. When I was a kid and I first became a proud member of the NRA, there was so much to learn and so much to do all focused around safety to the degree that... Even pointing a toy gun at a person is something that you get reprimanded for. You just don't do that. You train your body and your senses to never do that. You only point a gun at something you intend to kill, period. So therefore, you don't point it at like 99% of existence. (laughs) And if you're going to go hunting and shoot a bird or something, you know, if you're going to go birding or something, that's the one time you get to do it. Otherwise, it's just targets. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was ground into us. You know, that was that was a big part of... And they can say all they want about how they teach that now. No, they don't. No, they don't. I mean, they may have that in their package of learning, but uh,
2: uh, assault weapons is not about hunting. No, and there's no way to be safe with a an assault weapon. Right. They're not designed for that.
1: They're designed to kill people, not animals. They're, yeah. they're, they're not for gathering food. It's not a foraging weapon.
0: <laughs> well, the I've heard other people speak about the NRA that was and the NRA that is. And, mm-hmm. and the one that is now is, I mean, it's clearly, it's a lobbyist organization for yep. the gun manufacturers. And so I have my sense of how this all changed. How do you think it went from, you know, back in the, you know, fifties and before uh, hunting was, was hunting. It, it was a pastime. It was enjoyable, often, very oftentimes it was actually for sustenance and survival, and things like that. But somewhere along the road, it turned into something entirely different, you know. And and I know even for my father, you know, just his experience in World War II just changed the meaning of a gun altogether for sure. him. You know, it sure. just he never saw it the same way again. And and uh, you know, it was had difficulty with that. And so. You know that to me that was part of it, but what is the what was the driving factor that changed the way we look at deal with and how did we get to 410 million guns in the United States I, of America?
1: I, I, it's simple. It's greed. We we have a gun industry that is just entirely focused on greed, and it's uh, it's outlandish. We we had a gun industry at one time that wasn't like what it is today. There are too many board of directors, too many investors, there are too many CEOs, and they're just figuring out how they can continue notching that up. They literally design campaigns after a school shooting that net them greater profits because more people are now afraid in their neighborhoods and want to buy guns because they've been convinced this in their mailings. It's it's horrendous. My dad, who was a lifer in the NRA, would never have uh, uh approved of this do you know you know uh, i tell a little story about wall he um he approved of the brady bill after uh, reagan got got shot mm-hmm. and, and survived but uh brady bill you know uh brady was wounded it was his press secretary he's a wonderful guy and he and his wife he survived it for a while And he and his wife uh sponsored the brady bill and reagan approved of the brady bill and Walt was a, a Democrat that had been won over by the Republican Party, and so he approved of the Brady Bill. But the NRA campaigned vehemently against the Brady Bill, which was a sensible bill, and the, the dictates in the Brady Bill were actually things the NRA advocated only 10 years before that. So they flipped on this, and that's because they became you know, consumed by gun lobbyists' uh, uh, money. So Walt approved of it, and and he got so aggravated with what was the uh, the nonsense about uh, the Brady Bill that was being propagated all across the country, that um, well, he and I got into a little argument. This was years later when when I'm an adult about being members in the NRA because the NRA had changed, just like you're saying. So this this would have been uh, in the 90s now, when the Brady Bill got a second go around. This was be in the 90s, and Walt got so annoyed at what I was telling him about the NRA and he looked into it and he pretty much ascertained that what I was telling him was true that one day I was over there and he showed me when you're a lifer member, you get this embossed card, this embossed membership card after you've done like four decades or something. I don't know, but he was proud of that card and there it was cut up in tiny little pieces, stuffed in an envelope with a letter and he was sending it back to the NRA. And I said, wow, Wow, are you just doing that because I needled you about the NRA? <laughs> and he got so annoyed, he said to me, well, I'll tell you what, when I die and I'm bound to go before you, uh, you put this, that I did this, that I returned or rejected my membership over the Brady Bill in my obituary. Wow. And I said, all right, right. And sure yeah. enough, you know, Walt passed in uh, three, and... um. It was a unique obituary. It had a line in there yeah. that said, "Back in you know the 1990s, Walt Stead did this, rejected it." And at his memorial service, there were all kinds of you know old comrades and not so old comrades that were were hunters or firemen or what have you that Walt knew that came. I got, every one of them came up to me and said they were so touched by what Walt had done in the 90s. They never knew he did that, and and I thanked them. And of course, I said to them. So how, how does that, you, you know, how do you feel about that? And they said, we're, we're doing the same now. Oh, right. Yeah. Wow. Because what was the old man. It was There's the hunter. The you yeah. know? Yeah.
0: He was an honorable man.
1: Yeah. A truly
0: yeah. honorable man. Yeah. You know, I that's the way I remember him. Quiet and just as honest and straight and from the heart as a human being could be. You know? Just a, a genuinely good person. I really... I liked your father a lot. I uh, I wonder, you know, when you look at that, and, and when people hear this story, I wonder what they're going to be saying to you. I'm really, I'm really curious because, you know, every, what I've heard is that what ninety percent of. You know, decent NRA members have no problem with background checks and Mm -hmm. think that that's a good idea. I mean, why Mm -hmm. wouldn't you think that? You know, that's all we're asking. Yep. You know, can we just know who has a gun? And if all of a sudden somebody's racking up, you know, an arsenal. Wouldn't it be nice for the local you know, law enforcement to go down and just say, so what's, what's the plan here? What, what, what are we doing with 10,000 know, rounds of ammunition? And it's the reasonable
1: like that. thing to do. Right, right. Is that so terrible? What's- right. We went target shooting. I did this one of my daily stories. We, Walt was teaching me target shooting, and, and a guy he looked up to so much who was younger than him uh, showed us an Uzi, you know, uh, an Israeli machine gun that he had, and said, do you want to shoot this? And Walt, Walt was annoyed what the hell would I shoot that for? What the hell? What are you doing with that thing? You know? And he was just annoyed. It was just like, that's, that's out of, out of scope here. And the guy was, the guy was embarrassed. You know, he he thought, see, he thought, he projected that Walt's going to like this. This is a good thing. He hadn't thought that the only thing I can do with this is kill people. You know, like that hadn't connected to him. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And well, it's really, I mean, now we really have a, it is out of control completely. You can't look at your child and say, honestly, when they go to school, you'll be safe and everything will be fine. You can't say that. Yeah. It's incredible. And, it's and, you incredible. know, uh, you know, Scott, I know that you're a teacher for what, over two decades now, right? Yeah. And my, yeah. my wife is and, and uh, her sister is, and my sister Kathy is, and, uh, and it weighs on them all the time. My wife teaches blind children. She mm. works for the New Jersey commission for the blind. And she said, until you are in a closet with a little child who is blind during you know a you know a practice run you know a lockdown practice you really don't know how incredibly damaging this is to little children you have no idea and she said i think if everyone out there who you know constantly trumpets the Second Amendment, which, by the way, doesn't mean at all what they what they say it means. But everyone out there who trumpets the Second Amendment, I think if they had to stay in this closet with this frightened little kid who is not supposed to know whether this is a practice or a real, you know, yeah. she said, I think I think that things would really change if they saw what we're doing to these children because we never had to worry about this. And it's uh, it's unconscionable.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think they really need, when they talk about this stuff in, in in public policy, they need to stop using the phrase gun control. I think they need to talk it's gun, gun safety. Gun safety. Yes, exactly. exactly. I think yeah. they have to say that because mm-hmm. no one is taking uh, across the board guns away from people. No one is saying you can't go hunting, you can't go target practicing, or right. you can't have a defensive weapon in a situation where you need one because a lot of occupations require that. No one is saying that. But it's been distorted.
2: And, and I think we need to get back to a reasonable you know, conversation about this. Well, yeah. like a lot of the things going on in the country, if you talk to actual people, most people are reasonable. And I think whether you're Democrat, Republican, independent, everybody can agree yeah. that we want our kids not to be killed when they go to school. I think that's something we can all get behind. Yeah. And so what do we have to do? to make that happen. If we focus the conversation around that, I think we'd get farther because otherwise we're just going to our regular corners and we're, you know, blaming each other for whatever the ills are and we're, we're never going to get anywhere. I'm I'm a gun owner. I've shoot skeet. I target shoot. I've taught my 16-year-old to shoot. It has nothing. And in fact, when I go to a range and I'm talking to whether they're you know, gun owners or or the range officers. When you have a conversation, you frame it in that context. Nobody is against what the common sense ideas are that we're putting forth. Of course
0: not. Why would
2: they be? Well, exactly.
0: You know, and and that makes all the sense in the world. And there's nothing wrong with target shooting and hunting and things like that. Nothing wrong with that at all. With the proper training, with the proper gun and everything but we've you know we've lost our grip on we've we've rolled off the tracks here you know when you have 410 million guns there's something wrong there's Mm -hmm. just something wrong Mm -hmm. that doesn't make sense anymore and and that's that's what i think we need to to go after is is uh, a return to sanity really you know not you know not preventing people from owning guns you know or anything like that
1: right not at all just a return to sanity. Did you hear that now they've produced not just an AR fifteen, but something called a JR fifteen, which is a junior model of an AR fifteen for children?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I read the article very recently and I just looked at it and I just, and it's all
2: shiny and everything. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it you know. works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh
0: man, oh man. Well,
2: I agree with your wife. I think if anyone would come into a school building and you don't have to by the way be locked in a closet to get how far off the tracks we are. Yeah. And of all of the drills that we do, my my the the one that I cannot bear is is the lockdown drill. And maybe it's because I have experience with actual guns uh when that Uh, signal comes over the loudspeaker to lock down my blood goes cold and it's because you know it's completely the luck of the draw if you're going to live or die it has nothing to do with anything you could lock the door you can open the window you can lock the window you can doesn't matter because these weapons that are in common uh, availability at this point can go through doors they can go through cinder block, which right. is what most of the schools are made of. Yep, These sure. are not designed to be prisons. They're soft targets. There's no way to harden them. And even now we, we see in these examples, sadly, we even have examples of, of um, professionally trained security people who cannot stop this from yeah. happening because yeah. it happens in seconds.
1: And oh. you know, you know what we're doing here. You know, somebody could say, "Oh, the back porch stories is getting political." This is not left or right. No, this is not it's Republican not. or Democrat. It's not. This is sanity or insanity.
0: That's exactly right, Chuck. It, it, this has nothing to do with party. But the reason we we think that it does right. is because some, and this is political. Yep. I'll, I'll just say it. But some fairly corrupt leadership that we have in our legislatures and in, in our state legislatures and our federal in the, in the congress they look at this and they say ah a wedge issue yeah
1: we got something we can work with here. i can divide people with this <laughs>
0: this is good for me you know right. and that's why it seems that way but it's not it's not political at
2: all you know this is about life and death and safety yeah and we're americans all of us yeah, yeah. whatever your political stripes it doesn't matter we have to be unified to do what is right for all of us i totally
0: agree you were going to say chuck
1: no no that's good there we we go yeah we're ending on a good note here
0: you know sometimes (laughs) sometimes uh, uh we got a little serious this time but that's what a good story will do there you go it'll evoke those kinds of thoughts and ideas and everything else that's one of the reasons we love the stories, and we love you. So thanks so much, Thank Chuck. This you. was
1: great. What are we going to hear
0: about next time?
1: Well, uh, the next one, we're getting toward the end of the heebie-jeebie stories. Uh-oh. The next one, I know you're not going to like to hear that. <laughs> the next one is called Washing the Old Man. Washing the Old Man. And okay. uh, it's a fun story, and then we're moving into what a four-year-old has to come to realize happens in life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we'll, we'll go from there. Okay.
0: All right. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you next week. been listening to backport stories with chuck stead the song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is flyers rag composed by mr scott lewis our producer is joe serino and our cover photography is done by karen serino we'll be back with another episode each friday morning at 9 a.m so please subscribe click the like button share with family and friends and join us each week for another backport story